0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at tiaa.org/promises pay off.
1: I'm Maura Aaronsmealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. Each episode, We look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. Today, we're going to talk about boundaries. Boundaries are like a secret magic ingredient once you understand yours and they're so crucial but think about it when is the last time that you checked in to make sure yours were being at least partially respected at work whether it's a boss who always bothers you after hours or mine people always in my physical space once you know your key boundaries and you apply limits to try to maintain them at work your life will change Today's first guest, psychologist Dr. Rebecca Harley, is here to help us understand our boundaries and set limits. She told me that the people who come into her practice often just have one question How the bleep did I get here? Harley thinks it's because they tuned out a lot of messages that their boundaries were being violated in so many ways. And then later, HBR's Amy Gallo will join me to practice some tricky conversations and answer your questions around setting boundaries, considering if you should come out to your boss about your anxiety, depression, or other struggles, how and when to tell, and more. Why am I obsessed with boundaries? Well, this show is about anxiety, but it's also about excellence, And if I told you that your anxiety was actually a secret to your effective and authentic leadership, you might look at me funny. But if you can manage and negotiate with it, your anxiety will enhance your skills as a leader, like your focus and your passion and your drive. You want to be excellent and you can be. But you're never going to get there if you ignore your anxiety or resort to old coping mechanisms or let your boundaries get trampled over like grass under a herd of wildebeest. Rebecca and I met almost 11 years ago in our new mommy group when our sons were six weeks old and we were weepy and overwhelmed new moms. Little did I know she was a renowned psychologist. Dr. Harley is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School who has worked as a clinical psychologist and director at MGH and in private practice for over 15 years. Okay, so what are boundaries and why do they matter in the context of your work life?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think a general working definition of a boundary would be a guideline that we set for ourselves or that we kind of create for ourselves to identify what feels permissible or what feels safe um, as we operate in life. Mm. I think if we're on the inside of that territory, on the inside of a boundary, we feel more confident that we're going to be okay. We feel more confident maybe at work that we're going to function at our best. Um, And then if we're outside that boundary, like in a chronic way, I think that's where problems
1: can really start to arise. What is the relationship between anxiety triggers, which is a concept that I think a lot of certainly my listeners understand, and boundaries. I mean, how can understanding emotional and physical boundaries help you both manage your anxiety and and try to either avoid triggers or better process them?
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think it gets to another of the concepts um, that's sort of related to boundaries. um, That's this notion of a limit, Mm. right? So if the boundary is the general guideline or your sense of the territory, you know, that it'll be sort of more concerning to cross into either physically or emotionally or even intellectually around how you spend, how how much of your, t- your time, you know, you spend working or sort of whatever the boundary is, then the notion of a limit is like the line that you want to try and observe being careful not to cross, right? So so the line, a limit is the idea of a, you know, you're... Um, what you, give us a
1: real-world example. Yeah,
2: so, what, so it's what you are or aren't willing to do, right? Okay. Or what you are or aren't willing to tolerate. Like, so for instance you know, the world is not doing a great job for us professionally, sort of helping us separate times when we're working versus times when we're not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, for, for me, for instance, I'm pretty careful um, not to bring my phone upstairs with me past a certain time when I'm ready to go to bed, right? So so that has to do with my general sense of not wanting to work too much or not wanting to be too encroached upon by sort of the, the world of the internet. But the limit then is that the thing that I try and set for myself to, to pay attention to, is, you know, how, where is my phone at certain times of day, mm-hmm. right? And how close am I to it to try not to get triggered by picking it up, <laughs> right? The phone is literally downstairs. That's the limit. It is literally downstairs. That's right. That's right. And anxiety goes both ways. Like, so, you know, if we're not paying good enough attention and find ourselves, you know, living life in ways that cross a lot of boundaries or that, that kind of put us in positions that aren't the ones that are best for our mental and physical health then then probably anxiety is is going to be cropping up more and more along with depression and you know and other difficult internal states the flip side of that is in in a moment by moment way little flare-ups of anxiety are signals right sort of mm-hmm. like things we can actually
1: decide to tune into well i think that many of us who are achievers right train ourselves to to say, well, discomfort's part of it. Right. You know, how many people have you known who struggled through law school or or, or like you a PhD, you know, and said but I'm not supposed to enjoy it.
2: <laughs> right, right. No, exactly. I mean, and and it's tricky because I think part of that's true. I mean, like, right. to to be really good at something, you often do have to just plow through stuff, right, and kind of find your way and kind of do what you're supposed to do. And it's not as if we can sort of run through the world doing exactly what we want all the time, right? So so I think that's that is part of what success requires. And it's the differentiation between sort of how to know. Um often does take time. It's kind of layer upon layer of that observing, of that tuning in, and and kind of being willing to accept that I don't quite know what this means and mm. yet and yet I'm not gonna ignore it just because I don't know what it means or because I'm afraid of what it means, right? Like I'm gonna just let it be there, right? And I'm gonna let it be a topic of further, you know, exploration as more information comes in.
1: So okay, we we've we've used this term tune in. Mm-hmm how do you start? <laughs> do you tune into your body? Do you uh-huh. turn into emotion? Like, where do you start?
2: Yes. Well, yes and yes. Can I okay. say yes to yes, all of this? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I think um, tuning into whatever's there in the present, right? So you don't necessarily have to go searching, right? Mm. It's just about trying to to turn your attention, you know, inward right so whether it's whether the most prominent thing that you notice right in that moment is a physical sensation or whether it's a feeling that you can put some words to or whether it's a th- Thought, like, you know, the, you know, the social anxiety thoughts while giving a presentation of, like, I'm going to do terrible at this, right? This is going to be terrible, right? I mean, so it sort of one of those things might lead the way, right? And so whatever's there would be the first thing, you know? In the, in the, you know, culture these days, there's more and more talk about this concept of mindfulness. And that's really what we're talking about here is just paying attention, ideally, in a curious and not judgmental way to just observing and describing whatever your internal experience is in the moment. You know, looking at life and looking at inner life and looking at even hard things that happen from that kind of position of curiosity and like, you know, if, if I could be a detective here, maybe that makes it a little less scary, right?
1: Right. And I, and I may I may judge myself less.
2: Yeah, let's hope so. Because <laughs> <laughs> rarely have I ever seen judgment do anything other than shut us down.
1: Well, okay, let's talk about that. Because I, I think that as anxious achievers, mm-hmm. um, many of us, we want to please other. Mm-hmm. And a huge value to us is making everyone else happy, yeah. making others impressed with our performance. Um, and I feel like when that is a primary value, you may be explicitly not tuning in to how you really feel. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. Well, especially because, I mean, I think often there's this kind of dichotomy that gets set up inside us that says sort of, I must please others to the exclusion of what's good for me. Right. Right. I mean, so that sense of an either or um May live inside the given workplace, right? That may actually be part of the power dynamic of the place that you work, um, such that that environment is actually true in the in a certain way. Um, There, depending on where you are in the power structure of 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 a workplace, right? There, there may be explicit or implicit um, limits on what you're allowed to express. Right. 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 if and, you're if
1: you're a, a new person at the office. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, and that's 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 difficult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Because that's basically a moment where kind of the, the whatever you might wish to express interpersonally um, is is not welcome. Right. I mean, and so I think that, uh, you know, people make different um, decisions about that over time. But but I, I think that the truth of that is that doesn't equate to having to quash our own awareness of what we wish to say, right, of our our own awareness of how we feel, um, of the questions of like what is and is not my point of view, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's where it gets to be really the slippery slope, right? So we don't always choose to say or aren't able to say given the environment kind of exactly what we need, right? Right. But if we stop even paying attention to the question, right? Like, or answering it ourselves, even if it doesn't seem possible to get that thing out there in the real world, right? That's where that sort of slippery slope of like, how the heck did I get here starts to really feel slippery.
1: I think especially if you are early in your career and you accept that there's a lot of things you got to suck up Mm -hmm. or you're at a new job. You know, you have to impress people. That's just life. But at the same time, to play detective and think about... I'll never forget when I I started out as an executive assistant right after college. And I would observe the very powerful women that I was assistant to. And I would say things to myself like, I really love how they can come and go as they Mm -hmm. please. And no one ever asks where they are. Mm That was like a little piece of information I was saving for myself, even though at 22, that was not my option. Right. But I was like, oh, this is something I want to aim for. Yeah, it's
2: like there's this little ping that goes <laughs> off inside you that says that I like, right? Or the alternative, that I don't like. So it may not be that you can do anything about it right away, right? right. I mean, I think people will sometimes come into therapy and say sort of the, like, well, but I don't I don't think there's anything to be done about that, right? But I guess my answer is like, oh, boy, well, there's all kinds of doing, isn't there? Right? I mean, like sort of like, you know, it, there, like there's a kind of doing that's internal doing, which is the kind you just described, which mm. is like, I took notice of that and sock, socked it away right. <laughs> <laughs> for a future time when I felt like maybe I could actually make more of that my life, right? Um, but I, I think that's a kind of doing that's very important, you know, that t- to not feel hopeless that, oh, because I'm here in this moment with this set of choices means that I just have to suck it up and stop hoping or stop paying attention for what might work better for me.
1: Are anger and anxiety related emotions?
2: Mm, mm-hmm. Um, yes, and kind of in in two directions, um, like one can precede the other. Mm-hmm. And each can precede the other. You know, maybe your listeners are already familiar with this notion that, you know, part of how to think about anxiety is, is that it's old right inside of us as a feeling that relates to the need to flee or fight. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, part of what can happen when anxiety gets triggered is that sense sensitive. That I need, I either need to run away from this threat. Right. Or if I'm trapped and can't run away from it, maybe another urge that will come is to fight in some mm-hmm. way. Right. Mm-hmm. And so anger is a fight instinct, right? Anger is a feeling that is about trying to defend yourself mm-hmm. um, or argue against injustice or something along those lines. And so fear and anger then could totally follow, right? Sort of something scares me, but then I, I, I'm i realizing I need to defend myself inside it. And so anger could come next, right? You could flip that around and go the other way, though, right? Let's say you're feeling that there is some kind of injustice or there is something that makes you angry as because you need to defend um, something. Then and but let's say you're
1: not comfortable with that. You're a woman and you're, you're not allowed a, to be angry. That's right. You're like
2: <laughs> absolutely, we need to not forget societal and kind of cultural impacts here. Maybe you come from a culture where um, either in general or as a woman, you're especially not. So mm-hmm. you know. So so to have a feeling of anger and also to be feeling it as unacceptable, mm-hmm. right, or unexpressible um, because it won't be welcome or might lead to some kind of ramification, right? Then anger ang- anger might sort of be the feeling inside, and then the secondary feeling might be anxiety.
1: So if you had a boss, for example, who was continually violating boundaries, Mm -hmm. uh, let's use the old chestnut of always calling you on the weekend. Right. You might be angry, Mm -hmm. but you're also going to feel anxious all weekend. Yeah, as you're anticipating yeah those that. things
2: would for sure co-mingle, right? And then depending on who you were and how much sort of space you felt like you had inside you for this kind of differentiation, you may not even know you're angry, right? Mm. So like it just might feel like anxiety run rampant.
1: Or stuckness.
2: Right. I think a lot yeah. of us stuck. Or hopeless, feel stuck. right? Yeah, yeah. So all sorts of different versions of feelings that can arise in a situation like that.
1: Speaking of, of, of hopelessness or stuckness, you and I have talked in the past. You introduced a term to me that I think is super interesting: defensive pessimism. Oh, did I? I yeah, <laughs> I don't remember. You did okay. <laughs> you when know, we were getting pedicures, because um, <laughs> this is what we talk about, of course. Um, or the idea that that our our anxious patterns, in some ways, are they're so firmly part of our self interest, we we may not even notice them. Mm-hmm. You know that uh, to me, also, it's a sense that anxiety and and some of the feelings around it or even bad habits, they're they're comfortable for us.
2: Right. Right. No, it's very true. I mean, I think some of these patterns that may actually not serve us in the long haul Mm -hmm. are actually the more comfortable thing. Um, And there's so many things to say about that. I mean, that... It might be partly how I was, how I was taught as mm-hmm. a kid, right? Sort of maybe I'm modeling things um, that I, I kind of learned before I was even aware of the fact that that kind of teaching goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it can feel safer, Right. To Mm. kind of assume the worst, maybe in this particular example of defensive pessimism. Right. (laughs) Um, Or the tendency to catastrophize things. Right. This sort of like that sense that I am. um, So long as I'm the one that's imagining that that might be how it turns out, then somehow I'm like protecting myself. Right. It's the worst thing would be to be taken by surprise by an outcome that's negative that I didn't want. And so that kind of generalized worry that people can feel and certainly that kind of defensive pessimism. um, might well be kind of that well-worn trail that is um, that feels safer, right? Even though it may cause me kind of amazingly like more distress because n- now I'm sort of living in a world where I'm expecting the worst.
1: Well, and it's funny because I've actually read in books that – Anxious people, when a real crisis happens, can be heroes because mm-hmm. they've been preparing for the worst for their whole lives. Right,
2: right. It and can feel vindicating.
1: <laughs> I, I, I honestly do not know how I feel about that <laughs> sentence.
2: Right, right. I actually am not sure exactly about the data about that. If anybody <laughs> has studied it, it'd be interesting to find. Um, but I think that's true. Like there's, there's you know, um, there's a sense that kind of I'm going to be ready for it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but what that means is that it, it's sort of my my that curiosity window we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. Is much narrower. Right. Because when people are depressed and when they're worrying that way, they're, they're, there's this confirmation bias that yes. can kind of arise. Right. Where I'm pretty much more tuned for the things that confirm the negative and confirm the likelihood of the worst. And I'm actually filtering out things that are um, contrary to that or that are just neutral even. While you may be sort of ready for, you know, Armageddon when it comes, right? I mean, like, the question of your actual level of satisfaction in your daily life and your moment-to-moment existence sort of – it might not be as much as as it could be if there was a way to tune in differently.
1: Yes, or as my husband says – I can't even imagine what it's like to live inside your head.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. I know. Well, it reminds me of the other thing, another thing I remember us talking about maybe in that same conversation, um, this whole experiential avoidance idea, Mm -hmm. right? So we're in that territory talking about it. Like, there is this funky, paradoxical thing that we will do in the face of something uncomfortable or hard, where we kind of substitute that feeling out um, for... A less imminent but still very negative set of thoughts, right? So, like, let's say I'm sitting down to work on a project that is hard, like, Mm -hmm. or maybe tedious, like, just something I don't like, you know, something that's going to mean I have to sit with discomfort or feel yucky. Well, like your
1: taxes or something like that. Yeah, right,
2: right. Or, like, maybe it's a project at work that pushes the limits of my capability and Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do it. You know, so I like that's uncomfortable. That's a a negative set set of thoughts and feelings. And instead of actually sitting there and feeling those things, maybe I start to worry about how if I don't get this finished, I'm going to get fired.
0: Mm -hmm. Right.
2: And then actually, maybe I go even further. and Not only am I fired, but I'm like homeless, Mm -hmm. you know. Right. And so now I've been sitting at my desk, you know, thinking really upsetting thoughts and feeling those upsetting feelings. But what's amazing about that, the paradox is, without realizing, maybe I did that because I didn't want to feel the discomfort of working on the project.
1: Right, because you're feeling the familiar comfort. Of, exactly. I'm going to be homeless. I'm going to get fired. Yep. Because you've been feeling that. That's a very comfortable series. Yes. Of, yeah. Yes.
2: And it's relieving because it's not imminent. Yeah. Right. So like the the, mm. the relief is I the, the thing I'd have to be feeling more actively is right here inside me. And so instead I'll borrow trouble. And to to actually strip off the layer that is about resisting it mm-hmm. means that actually our distress paradoxically is a little bit less in that moment, right? If I could, this is the time where I would normally use my hands <laughs> like and show, like, so imagine a ball, and that's the pain or the distress, right? Mm-hmm. But then imagine a ball, like, with a whole nother, you know, three-inch layer on it that makes the sort of sphere bigger, right? Mm. That's the That's what the Buddhists and the mental health folks who use these concepts would call suffering, which is the resistance to the truth of the pain, right? So that, like, I'm going to resist that feeling. I don't want it to be here, so I'm going to just sort of try and push it away, get away from it somehow. But if you think about that three-dimensionally, now my distress is actually bigger than if I had just kind of engaged more directly by turning towards whatever was uncomfortable in the first place.
1: Rebecca Harley, thank you so much.
2: You are so welcome. It was a pleasure.
1: I'm sitting here in the flesh at Harvard Business Review with... Amy Gallo, who wrote the HBR guide to dealing with conflict and is a contributing editor to HBR and is going to help us really have, think about, you know, okay, I'm going to sit in this room and I'm going to have a difficult conversation with my coworker, team, boss... HR, maybe. HR. And really ask for what I need, you know, in terms of preserving my mental health, maintaining it, or if I'm in a really, you know, bad place, taking the time that I need. Because you've you've heard on the show, and, and we just talked with Rebecca Harley about how to really tune in to what you might need to understand your boundaries, how people cross them all the time at work and how that can really contribute to stress and anxiety. It's an amazing thing when you know your boundaries. It's another to ask. And not only that, to keep asking, right? So thanks, Amy. Thanks for having me. I'm curious, as an, as an, an expert in this stuff, um, do you have any sort of self-talk or mantras or pep talks when you start feeling a little anxious before a
0: difficult conversation. For sure. And, and I, there's actually a couple steps I take that help me calm down. Um, oftentimes with a difficult conversation, I will tell myself this is just work. Mm. Right? This is not life or death. This is just work. This is not me you know, having to rush to the hospital or me having to do something that's going to change my life forever. This is a conversation. And how will I feel about this conversation in a week? or in a month, or in a year. Chances are it will be relatively inconsequential. Mm -hmm. So I sort of try to give myself a little perspective. The other thing, and this is what I really encourage people to think about, is figure out what is my goal? in that conversation. What is it that I actually want? Is it that I want my teammates to stop emailing me on the weekend? Is it that I want my boss to let me leave early on Thursday evenings so I can go to therapy? Right? What is it exactly that I want as the, a result of this conversation? And that's going to really guide how you navigate it. And I do encourage it to be a discussion. I think a lot of times people think of boundaries, setting boundaries as you know, a demand or even a request. And oftentimes it's a conversation to figure Mm -hmm. out what have we both been assuming here? How can we make this a little clearer? How can I maybe request something? How can we experiment for a little while to see if that request works, right? This is an ongoing discussion. This isn't, I can't check my email anymore on the weekends or I'm going to be sick.
1: Am I scheduling a specific meeting to do this? Am I, I'm I'm not casually bringing it up in the hall. Yeah. I I would assume but like well, how am I what am I do
0: how am I setting this conversation up for success? Yeah. So I think there's three things you need to do to set it up for success. One is mentally get in the right space for you, right? Not like I can't if you're thinking, "Oh my gosh, she's horrible. She's ruining my weekends. This is awful. I need to lay down the line. That conversation is not going to go well. Now, take can, this job and shove it. Exactly, exactly. So can you get can you be curious? What don't you know about the situation? Can you look forward to it as an interesting conversation with your boss about setting boundaries as mm-hmm. opposed to a conversation you're dreading? You also want to think, what are your main messages? What mm-hmm. is it you want to deliver? And here is a, a big question about are you interested in disclosing your mental health issue? or not you know and that 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 will be important to know what are your key messages what what's what's the reason you're gonna you're having this conversation that's where you also want to think about what your goal is Mm. and then there's the logistics what is knowing what you know about this person knowing about what you know about you where is the best time and place to have this conversation oftentimes it's a you know In a conference room, in a meeting room, in a quiet place where you can both focus on the conversation. So, the hallway conversation is not typically good. Um, But if you, you know, it might be you go out to coffee, it might be in part of a check in that you already have scheduled. You have to figure out how big of a deal do you want to make this and saying, I need an hour with you to discuss email on the weekend. Makes it a pretty big deal, right? So can can you figure out what the sort of level of severity, right. that you want to convey? C- could
1: we out? grab twenty minutes after right after the staff meeting? There's something I'd love to talk about. Exactly. exactly. Yep. So so I want to talk about the keeping the boundaries because I think this is hard. So so you have a great conversation with your boss or your team. You know, I think a lot of it is a team dynamic. We've all been on teams where it's the the reply all contagion. I call it where everyone is like. I'm going to answer this email right away and I'm going to reply all so everybody knows how on top of it I am. So, okay, you say, hey, guys, let's try something, right? Maybe, you know, after 7 p.m., after 6 p.m. or on the weekends, we could be more thoughtful about email. We could try a little less reply all because here's a statistic that shows that it makes people anxious. And my executive coach recommended you could – it's always good to pull in, like, outside yes. experts.
0: right? So they're all, like, Cool. Right. Yep. Wait. can I I just point out something about your request, which I really like, which is like, let's try something. Yeah. Right. I think that and this is true, whether you're talking to your boss, whether you're talking to peers, whether you're talking to even HR, present it as an experiment, Mm. Mm -hmm. because then people, if you tell them we will never be able to email weekends for the rest of time, right? Some people would think that's great, but it's much harder to get an accommodation or to get people to change their behavior forever. Right. Whereas if you say let's try it for a month and see how it goes, then it's a much easier. They, they get used to it. They see what actually works, what right. doesn't. Right.
1: That's a really good point. Yeah, I like
0: the word pilot. Let's do yes. a pilot. Yes. Yes.
1: Okay. Let's let's talk a little bit about disclosing, right? Yes. Because this is a question that we get a lot. You know, and there's levels, right? So. I think it's becoming actually more acceptable. And, and a lot of leaders are leading the way saying, I have an appointment every Thursday. And we all sort of know it's therapy and it's like wink, wink, you know, and it's on their calendar. And that's great. Um, some might even say, I'm going to therapy. It's Thursday. When do you know it's okay to be honest? Because sometimes if you say, I've got to slip out for an hour on Thursday, people don't take it seriously enough. And then you're anxious. So you want the boundary of this is sacred time to me, but you may not feel
0: comfortable disclosing like how do you how do you judge how to have that conversation? yeah, and that's I mean it's a really personal decision. Mm-hmm. I wish there was a checklist I know that you could just we could hand out and people would say <laughs> here's here's when you can disclose your mental health issue at work um you know a couple of things to keep in mind one, there are protections in place at least in the u s mm-hmm. that does not mean your boss or your organization will adhere to those protections. Um, But there are protections. And there's actually, um, you know, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has some resources around what your legal protections are. If you choose to disclose, I think it's important to educate yourself Mm. on those and educate them, educate yourself before you need an accommodation. Mm. Know what your legal rights are. Um, But then it comes down to really, do you trust the person you need to tell or the people you need to tell. This is sensitive information. The reality is that while it is becoming more normalized, there is still quite a lot of stigma. Mm-hmm. And you usually don't know how people are going to react to that information. So it's it's really a personal decision. Do I trust these people? Do I think I will... Be protected is will my job be at risk will my reputation be at risk and it then you have to decide do I do I feel comfortable doing this mm-hmm. um you know it, I have definitely have colleagues who've disclosed to me either one-on-one or have said you know definitely have the wink-wink Thursday afternoon appointment um and you know I think in the environment I currently work in it's not an issue at all um but it it's it really depends on the organization. I mean, it it's hard because I wish I could tell people, you know, disclose and 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 actually disclosing would help normalize even more mm-hmm. if more of us were talking about it. But I don't want to tell people to disclose if their job might might be at risk and or their reputation or their relationships with people at work, and that's the reality for many many people. It's
1: true. I, and, and I think also it's really important. It's such a, there are cultural differences. There are probably geographic differences about how we think about this stuff. And also in some offices have no FaceTime value, right? They they don't care where you are. So being out of touch for an hour and not visible is like literally not a big deal. But if you're an executive assistant, as I was for many years, and you have to leave your desk for an hour, there's a lot of logistics involved, right? Right. right. Um. So so it really is also about where you are in your career and 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 all that. I would encourage though I think leaders, people who can disclose. Yes. to do it because you make it so much easier for
0: others. Yeah. And there's lots of benefits to disclosing. You feel like you can bring your full self to work, you might actually get the emotional support from your colleagues that you mm-hmm. um you know that you need. It would reduce stress of trying to hide um your situation or trying to hide the fact that you need to leave for therapy for every week. And so there are benefits, but I think you have to weigh the costs as well before right. you make the decision. And and you don't have to say, I'm going to therapy because I'm I have bipolar, right? You can say, I have a doctor's appointment every Thursday. Mm-hmm. I need to leave at, you know, 3 30 let me know if that's a problem. I'm I'm assuming it's not because I'll get I'll be online later and get my work done, yeah. or I'll make up for the hours on Friday. Whatever you, whatever you can do to make up for the time, and and present it as this is what I have to do. Right, like you had a broken leg and you had to go to physical therapy, otherwise you couldn't walk again. Exactly, and yep. no one would say, "Wait, you're going to physical therapy every week, mm-hmm. right?" It, and it, and I think you have to remember present it as as. Um, you know, as in, you, you, just the facts, ma'am. That's mm-hmm. that's how I think of it. Like, right? what's the basic information the person needs to allow the accommodation you need?
1: I'm curious, in all your years working in many different environments, um, if you've ever had a colleague, I was thinking, you know, maybe you're traveling and it's a bumpy flight and someone says, I, I get really anxious on planes. Like, has anyone ever sort of volunteered information or I'm going through a hard time, I'm I'm depressed, I've got stuff going on? and and how has
0: that how has that felt to you? Well, oh, I'm a fearful flyer. <laughs> <laughs> so, too. I've certainly disclosed that to, to colleagues and it's been well received. And and it's funny. I mean, I think more than anything people feel like they they should offer advice. Yeah. <laughs> which is very funny. I'm like, you know you don't understand how exactly how fearful I am exactly. Um but they, you know, sometimes it's good pointers. Um but I have had I've had colleagues in when I worked at a management consulting firm, um there was a colleague who had A panic disorder who, um, you know, shared that and talked particularly in the context of we're in a very high stress Mm. project. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she she let us know that what was happening, we were able to make accommodation for her. She didn't require much. Um, And, you know, it's it there's always that moment of discomfort. I think the moment of discomfort for me when someone discloses to me is, the instinct to help mm-hmm. and it's not my job typically to help i mean i can be empathetic i can be supportive but i it's my job to say thank you for telling me and then figure out how and if it affects
1: the work right and let me know let me know what you need let me know well actually let's talk about that because yep. i think on the flip side of being able to ask for what you need is also being a coworker who feels like their boundaries might be being violated by someone who's oversharing. We've all had the oversharing coworker, right? Or someone who works for us or whomever who trusts us. And all of a sudden we feel like their therapist, which is not appropriate either. So what's your advice around that?
0: Well, and I I think if someone tells you that they're dealing with a mental health issue, hopefully there's a reason, right? Mm -hmm. Hopefully it's just not information they're blurting out or or oversharing um if, although in fairness
1: when you're feeling that way i mean i'm a blurter i've said that on the show mm-hmm. your judgment and your impulsivity might be not as good as it yep. always is
0: yeah of course and and it's and that's you know i think you want to um when someone discloses to you whether it, it feels like they're doing it intentionally and thoughtfully or just in a moment of panic or or nervousness. Um, I do think you want to say, thank you for telling me, um, because it's usually a very hard thing to say. And then, as you said, let me know if there's anything I can do. Mm -hmm. But I think keeping it very professional, um, not asking a lot of questions, especially in the overshoot where you're concerned, well, wow, I've worked with this person for a week maybe, (laughs) and they're telling me now, Right. right? Don't ask a lot of questions. Don't make it a regular topic of conversation. Put up your own boundaries by showing... It's okay you've told me. I'm here if you need me. But we're done with that mm-hmm. topic, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't have to say we're done with that topic. But you can demonstrate you're done by talking about work next, mm-hmm. about moving on. And, and really try to be as, as comfortable with it as you can because that's going to convey this is a normal topic of conversation. We also have 10 other things we need to talk about it. So here we go. Is it okay to say something like if you have been there, like, I've been there. I get it. For sure. If you if you feel comfortable yeah. doing that again, that is not required because that's a disclosure in itself. And so you have to decide, is that is that something you want to do, especially if you're dealing with an oversharer, Is this someone who's then going to share that information? Mm-hmm. Right. Or are they going to go to the next person and say, I talked to Maura. She told me she's dealing with this too." feel good about it. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> you, you know, you have to be careful and, and know who you're who you're talking to because that information could could travel. Um but and and the oversharing is interesting. I think, I think there's some generational misconceptions around it, right? That you know, millennials are oversharing, or that certain types of people will overshare. I haven't personally witnessed that. I don't think there's a lot of research to back that up. But keep your judgments t- to yourself. So if someone does overshare, you know, don't be like, "Oh, this is because she's 28 and they're all doing this," or. You know, oh, you know, every woman who I've worked with in HR overshares, or right. you know, what? Just keep your judgment out of it. Let them do what they're going to do, and and put up the boundaries that you need to. And in the situation where someone is asks you, essentially doesn't ask you, but sort of starts treating you as their therapist, I think you need to gently put up your boundary there, and and that may be spending less time with that person, social time with that person. Um, changing the subject to work topics, Mm -hmm. doing more interaction with them over email or Slack rather than in person, you know, just subtly showing this is not the role I want to play and there are times where you may need to actually point blank say that, say, you know, I I enjoy our conversations I think you need more help than I can provide and it's impairing my ability to get my work done Mm -hmm. Um, I'm hoping we can continue to meet up, but we can talk about different things. Last question is um, a real question, actually, that
1: we got from a listener that I I wanted to bring up. And and she wrote, I've been struggling with anxiety and depression for the past decade. She asked, is there any chance you can address how to mention your mental health to future employers? I've taken a long three-year stint after dealing with severe depression, and I'm back looking for jobs. I'm not sure how to tell potential employers without scaring them that I may not show up again
0: because of my mental illness. That's a hard question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, th- and this is this is tricky territory again for all the reasons we talked about earlier around stigma and you don't have a relationship with this person or with this organization. So you can't do, you know, the detective work of figuring out will this person be open to hearing this? Again, I would advise this person to go back to what is their goal is Mm -hmm. their goal to get a job, any job, just a job, right? Maybe they need to get back in the workforce right away. Maybe they need money. Maybe, you know, they're just anxious to get started again, or do they want a job where people will be supportive and understanding and accommodate her in any way that, that she needs? If it's the former and she just needs a job, there is no need for her to disclose unless her illness prevents her from doing the job as described mm-hmm. in this current moment. Mm-hmm. I would not plan for eventualities if, if she has a relapse. Can she do the job in this moment if they were to hire her? And if the answer is yes, there's no need to disclose. If, however, she does want a job where she will be supported, where people understand, she could use that interview as a litmus test, mm. and and choose to disclose and see how the interviewer reacts, how HR reacts, how any recruiters involved react, because um, that'll tell you a lot about how the organization will handle the issue when it does become an issue for you in, in, in whether or not she could do her job. Um, I, I think you could certainly ask a lot of questions without disclosing as well. You know, what are the company's health benefits? What are the mental health benefits? Um, What what, have people taken leaves of absence? What have they taken leaves of absence for? Um, You can certainly ask a lot of questions that would also get you that information or at least some of that information without disclosing. They might catch on that you're asking a lot of questions about that. But again, how they react to those questions will say a lot about how they will be when you need accommodation in the job. Yeah. Um, she's under no legal obligation, obviously, to tell them she should know that, um, you know, she just needs to be, you know, careful, take care of herself, figure out what is her goal, and then make thoughtful choices that help her get that goal. I love that. And, and I think also my, my
1: heart answer for her is that if she really feels great and she's really ready and she's passionate about going back to work we 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 meant we people with mental health disorders who are also dazzlingly amazing at our careers can be both and my advice is always to dazzle first and then do your detective work and then you know maybe ask more about mental health and and even if you're comfortable after you've totally dazzled them after they've given you an offer right right because that also I think in your subtle way, you're you're doing you're doing amazing work in in erasing stigma. You know, I am a dazzlingly amazing professional who's going to change this company. Oh, and by the way, I had to take time off because I had a serious issue.
0: Yeah, which is and in, in, uh, there is a lot of power in disclosing in that way, and and also some risk, and and that you have to consider both. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Amy. Yeah, thank you, Mora. This is great. I love your show.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hi everyone, it's Mora. So I have exciting news, which is that the show will be back for a season two in spring twenty twenty and I really can't wait to talk to more people, explore more um, incredibly, to me, fascinating um, aspects of our mental health lives and our journeys. And I really want to hear from our listeners. If you have an idea for a show or you'd like to tell us your story, just drop me a line, anxiousachiever at gmail.com. That's right. Just send an email to anxiousachiever at gmail.com. That's it for this week's show. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe and submit a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And if you have an idea for the show or you want to tell us your story, drop me a note at anxiousachiever at gmail.com or you can tweet me at Mora AM. That's M-O-R-R-A-A-M. Special thanks to the team at Harvard Business Review, my producer Mary Dew, the team at Podcast Garage, and all of our guests who are telling us their stories from the heart. From the HBR Presents Network, I'm Maura Ahrens Mealy, and this is the Anxious Achiever.